7-Eleven has more drinks than times you've been caught singing in your car and random lyrics stored in your brain combined. Choose from Big Gulp flavors starting at 79 cents, like Fanta Orange, Minute Maid Fruit Punch, Powerade Mountain Berry Blast, Brisk Strawberry Melon Iced Tea, plus many more only at participating 7-Eleven stores. This summer, put on your favorite song and hit the road with a thirst-quenching Big Gulp drink starting at 79 cents today, plus taxes where applicable. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts, you can get $25 or more off brand-new DeWalt power tools by trading in your old ones. You know, those worthless tools you never use anymore? Yeah, those dusty things can actually save you at least $25 on new DeWalt power tools. Hmm, not so worthless after all. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores, while supplies last. Offer ends 6 do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the AM Campaign and Fourth District. Uh, Justin, it's a it's a new week uh, and a changed uh, country. How, how are you doing? It is definitely a new week. Uh, I'm doing all right, man. I actually have had a cold for the last few days. So uh, all those folks out out there will have to uh, excuse my nasal tone. But outside of that, I'm doing all right, getting ready for a couple of events that we have coming up. So I'm excited. That's good. Yeah, man. It seems like everyone's getting sick. It's just kind of going, going through. And I, I know you got two young boys, so especially, especially when you got young yeah, kids the, the, in the, the house. Petri dishes, man. They they always bring something <laughs> back. And the crazy part about it is, you know, after a day or so, their nose will be running and they'll be running around. But I catch it, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like in the bed shivering. So uh, <laughs> right. I, yeah. I guess it, it, I guess it comes with age. The other crazy thing is that it's still like 90 degrees in Atlanta. So people are really wondering if fall is going to come or not, but I'm kind of tired. Summer colds are bad. So it's not actually summer, but since it's so hot, I have a cold and it's just not a fun place to be, but I'm going to make it work. Not, not enjoyable at all. Uh, Well, it's good to be back with you for another episode of the podcast and and good to be speaking with uh, all of you who are listening out there. We have uh, quite a bit to get through this episode. It's been a a uh, crazy busy week, and so we want to get through it and get through it in an efficient uh, but thorough manner. And y- you know, I-, I think this will be the last podcast, hopefully at least for you know a few weeks, that we start with Brett Kavanaugh, which I think is the only place you can start on uh, on Saturday. Brett Kavanaugh was approved by the Senate, uh, and was sworn in in a private ceremony Saturday evening. Uh, uh, On Monday, President Trump held a kind of swearing-in ceremony uh, from the East Room of the White House. And Brett Kavanaugh will be hearing cases uh, this week. (laughs) And so uh, quite a a quick change after a a big buildup. Senator McConnell ushered through another Supreme Court nominee, 
the Democrats fought hard. Uh, Joe Manchin is the only Democrat to vote uh, for the nominee. And of course, uh, uh, Lisa Murkowski voted against other sort of moderate senators who were people were paying attention to. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp voted against the nominee. Uh, Jeff Flake ended up voting for the nominee. And so almost a complete party line vote uh, on Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Justin, we we talked quite a bit about Kavanaugh last episode. And so I I don't know if we need to sort of recap, uh, you know, his judicial philosophy and how the, how the nomination process went. Uh, But looking ahead, uh, this is a month out from election day and midterm elections. So how do you think, uh, the way that this played out is going to affect uh, what happens uh, in in the midterms in the in the uh, in the fight for Congress. It could possibly have a major effect on the fight for Congress and beyond that. Um, and so it's yet to be seen. But but listen to this, and he, here's why I think it could ha- it could play a big part. And there's a historical significance to this as well. Um, Kavanaugh was confirmed by the smallest margin since 1881 and here's a historical fact i was going to call it a fun fact and then i realized that nothing about this was fun but the washington post had an article out that i thought was interesting the only supreme court justice confirmed by a smaller margin than um than brett kavanaugh was justice stanley matthews again in 1881 he was nominated by president rutherford b hayes and actually had to be nominated twice to get through now here's the here's here's what made this interesting matthews was a good friend and maybe even had some uh family uh relation to uh president hayes and the process was suspect suspect because president hayes his election was disputed Apparently, people thought there was some fraud going on with the Electoral College and all that stuff. It became a huge issue. So he hired President Hayes, hired Matthews to be his attorney. And Hayes uh, negotiated a deal where he agreed to remove federal troops from a few southern states if Hayes was president. So basically, they ended this dispute by getting getting together with some southern states and withdrawing and agreeing to withdraw federal troops from those states. Now, the crazy part about it and why people thought that Matthews was an opportunist is that he was against slavery. But when it came time to to do something in his favor and for somebody that he knew, he was willing to make that deal. Now, some people would say that this was the beginning of the end of Reconstruction and also ushered in Jim Crow, which we know had a devastating effect to black Americans for decades after that. So just some interesting history behind all this. But never has there been a smaller margin since 1881. Um, now, we're, we're going to see very soon. We know that on what November 6th, the midterms are coming up and we're going to see very soon what impact uh, this Kavanaugh confirm, uh, confirmation process had on it. Now, one thing that we're seeing already, though, if we think back, remember that Senator Flake was derided by a lot of Republicans after changing his mind and calling for an FBI investigation. He was called weak. He was called flaky and a panderer. But it looks like the investigation actually might have helped Republicans. 
reports and polls are showing that Republicans are actually more motivated after this process, especially in states like Texas and Tennessee, where there are two very important Senate races going on right now. So in Texas, Republican Ted Cruz is up six points on Democrat Beto O'Rourke. And in Tennessee, Republican Marsha Blackburn is up eight points on Democrat Phil Bredesen. Um, And any additional motivation on behalf of the Republicans in these two races could be really bad. So when polls are showing that most people in these two states actually supported Kavanaugh, and it's also showing that Republicans are a little more fired up in those states. So that's something we got to keep an eye on. Now, I would mention something else that tells us how people are feeling in Tennessee is that the Democrat candidate for Senate, Phil Bredesen, actually made a statement supporting Kavanaugh. Again, that tells a lot about what his internal polling is saying about how Tennesseans feel about this process. Now, I have to admit, I thought that this process and everything that was going down with the FBI was going to hurt Republicans. That would have been my guess before all of this. But throughout the process, somehow uh, folks have gotten more fired up. Now, there are places like Arizona and New Jersey where Democrats are showing that they're fired up. They have a little advantage in, in that they were more people were against Kavanaugh. But this is shaping up to be an interesting conversation. If I had to give... Um, if I had to say what I thought was going to happen, I I'd still think the re- Democrats are going to take the House, uh, maybe by a smaller margin. Anything can happen. There's still a lot of time. But I do think the Republicans are going to maintain the sen- Senate, not necessarily because of Kavanaugh, but certainly uh, it may help them at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I like that you focus on states <laughs> for uh and state polling in your analysis. Uh, I have seen CNN had a national poll that came out today, and a lot of folks on the left were sharing uh, that, and the results from that were were pretty clear, basically showing that those uh, most uh, motivated and more likely to vote because of Kavanaugh were doing so in in opposition to Kavanaugh, not for. Uh, But when we look at these Senate races, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter if... Uh, liberals in California are fired up about this uh, in Tennessee. Uh, you know, the, the the fate of the Senate, especially because this is such a tough year for Democrats, because remember, all of the seats uh, that are up uh, for reelection in this year were seats that were won when President Obama was on the ballot in 2012. And so we have races again in, in places like North Dakota and West Virginia uh, and Missouri, where we're trying to defend democratic seats. Uh, uh, all that matters is these states when it comes to the to the Senate, that, that that's where uh, control is going to lie. Uh, and and I, I do think we're going to have to certainly wait for things to to clarify. It's going to be interesting to see. We already started to see Democrats pivot uh, uh, even during the final day or two of hearings away from a message uh, specifically around Dr. Ford's allegations and start to focus uh, uh, again on sort of the broader policy implications of putting uh, Kavanaugh on on the bench, but it's it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see how that shakes out. And I agree with you in places like Texas and Tennessee, what Kavanaugh clarified for folks was uh, sort of what being a Democrat means and what being a Republican means. <laughs> and I think uh, 
in, in states where Republican registration, you know, is, is significantly more than Democratic registration. Sometimes these races just go back to to fundamentals go back to the fact that that we have states that are overwhelmingly Republican and overwhelming overwhelmingly Democrat. I um uh, just I'm still I think Beto is going to have a rough rough go of it. I'm I'm I've never been too too high on his chances though. Uh, anything can happen on election day if if turnout is impressive then he could win. But I, I think Bredesen still has a shot in Tennessee, even with some rough poll numbers coming out in the last uh, week or so because of his strong reputation in the state. But it's it's gonna be uh it's gonna be gonna be interesting to see. Uh it, it's gonna be interesting to see how Kavanaugh acts on the bench in these first uh in these first a few weeks. Typically uh, justices are a little reticent to to speak too much on their first sort of sort of days and their first uh, session on the bench. But Gorsuch was uh, notably more vocal than is typical. It'll be interesting to see if Kavanaugh follows suit and if there's any fodder provided by Kavanaugh's engagement on the court that uh, only continues to put energy and, and momentum behind this uh, this key dynamic of the race. Yeah, and honestly, talking about the court is actually something that might be more important or or have a more lasting effect than what happens in the midterms. I mean, this is a lifetime appointment. And not only that, some legal experts are saying that they believe that this process will have a negative impact on the court's reputation as a whole. Um, And we will find out over time. Now, look, I've said this before. I think that Neil Gorsuch uh, should be on the court. And so this entire back and forth has been tainted since then, in my opinion. That said, Kavanaugh at this point is on the court and he will have to be judged, no pun intended, by his thought, by the thoughtfulness of his opinions. Um, That's that's where we are right now. We have to deal with that reality judge him on the thoughtfulness of his opinions. If he proves to be completely biased or um, somehow unfit, uh, then, you know, I think history will show that, but he's on the court. We have to judge him and hope that he does the right thing uh, on the court and, and is about justice rather than anything that is overly partisan. Yeah. Just to close out the session, Justin, I'm not sure if you heard this today, but Senator Mitch McConnell did an interview with uh, John Dickerson over at CBS yesterday where he seemed to indicate and, and sort of switched his talking point a bit uh, to suggest that the reason why uh, w- why he didn't bring up Merrick Merrick Garland for a vote, which is something that, or even for a hearing, as we've discussed on this podcast before, is not just because it was made, uh, the, the the vacancy occurred during the last year of a presidential term, but because it occurred during the last year of a presidential term in which the opposing, uh, a, a different party uh, than the president's was in control of the Senate. Uh, many people took this has uh, sort of uh, foreshadowing uh, another cynical move by Mitch McConnell, which is to say that if uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat opened up, that that he'd have no problem moving forward with with another nominee uh, uh, to to the bench, almost complete, you know, discarding the the made up rule that he had uh, uh, employed for Merrick Garland, and so you know, it's just. Uh, incredible that he would uh, say something out loud like that 
in a moment when the integrity of the court is under question to sort of add insult to injury and open up sort of this new horizon of cynicism uh, and, and sort of uh, cynical tactics was uh, was uh, you know shocking to folks and, and but also very confirming of exactly how Mitch McConnell views power and uh, and uh, using the power that he has. Yeah, it sounds quite convenient, and uh, it really fits in with the last subject we're going to talk about uh, today, which is the lies that uh, politicians tell, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Ah, That's good. That's good. We will get to that. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to uh, we have something of a positive policy update for y'all, which we always love to share. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and Justin, uh, we saw, uh, believe it or not, in the midst of last week, which was one of the most contentious partisan weeks in uh, in, in recent memory, really, uh, the Senate uh, managed to pass a, a sweeping, nearly unanimous uh, bipartisan bill uh, to combat, com- combat the opioid crisis. Uh, on uh, Wednesday, by a vote of 98 to 1, with only uh, Mike Lee opposing it, uh, Congress passed an opioid bill uh, that includes uh, some some pretty significant uh, provisions that will allow the U.S. Postal Service to screen packages for fentanyl shipped from overseas. Uh, 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 these uh, opioids have been uh, shipped and have been hard to detect and have been responsible for a, a, a number of overdose deaths uh, in in the last few years. Uh, we also saw uh, public health advocates were very excited about the bill's attention to treatment. Uh, the, the legislation creates a grant program program for uh, recovery centers. It opened up, uh, it will open up uh, Medicaid to patients that were uh, previously prohibited by kind of weird regulations that banned uh, patients from receiving Medicaid if they were receiving treatment in a mental health facility with more than 16 beds. Uh, And so a pretty significant package. Uh, The, the the major critiques of this bill were that, uh, that the funding level just uh, isn't on par with what is needed for uh, for a, a really an epidemic like this. Uh, there, there's eight point five billion dollars allocated this year uh, for opioid related programs, but there's no guarantee for subsequent years, which means that the the whole health field can't really uh, can't really plan uh, f- plan far out, obviously, if the money's not secured. Uh, but this is a this is a positive bill. It, it headed to the president's desk. Uh, it will be uh, interesting to see what kind of activity uh, and what kind of public uh, push is made around a bill like this, uh, especially in, again, in election season, but also uh, with the priority President Trump has put on it. So uh, I, I think this is a good thing. What about you, Justin? Brother, where this is the work that the people want to see, right? People want to see things getting done. Um, And so it is good to see that while fighting a bitter partisan battle over Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation that the Senate did something productive and it should be getting more attention uh, than it is. Uh, Again, you you pointed out that it passed uh, nearly unanimously in something this big uh, during this time. It seems like that rarely happens. 
Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see it. We know that the opioid um, crisis is, is just out of control. I believe in 2016, there were over 66,000 uh, overdose deaths. Uh, Two thirds of those deaths were from opioids. Uh, so this is a problem that must be dealt with. And I'm glad to see that Congress is finally doing something about it. Now, this legislation states, as uh, some of this was mentioned by uh, Brother Ware, but uh, it, it states that it includes Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare and public health reforms to combat the opioid crisis by advancing treatment recovery initiatives and so on. I want to get a little bit more specific in that it actually targets China who is the U.S.'s primary producer of synthetic of the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Um, it also, as, as mentioned, it, it requires the post office to track international packages. And many at the post office were, were a little bit upset with that, saying that they really didn't have the manpower to make it happen. That could have been behind some of the people that voted against it. Um, and if you look at the numbers, it does provide uh, money, n- number one, for jobs, for those who have finished treatment and also for housing for those who have finished treatment. But it's 30 million uh, for a select states each and then 25 total to help with housing. Um, better than nothing. Absolutely. And so we don't want to cry that, you know, when we're getting more than we had before. But you do wish that there was a little more money uh going towards this because that can get eaten up pretty you know pretty quickly just by the administrative expenses and all that stuff so uh not a huge amount of money going towards it but we are focused on this opioid crisis and it seems like those who are pushing it i know senator rob portman was one of those people are excited about the fact that we are moving forward with something like this if we can track down uh, that fentanyl, if we can make sure that it's not going across state lines as easily as it is right now, uh, that would be great because we have to start cracking down on this. I mean, if you've watched the news on this stuff, there are entire towns where that have just been devastated by opioid use. Um, and it's important, but it's also important that we focus on other drugs t- too. I mean, we still have crack crises, a crack crisis in certain areas and heroin and things of that nature, not taking anything away from what happened here. This is good, but we want to make sure that we have the necessary resources to take care of all of that. And so this is a step in the right direction. Wish we could have gotten more here, uh, but we'll take it as we move forward with hopes that we can do more in the future. Yeah. And, you know, this is precisely the kind of uh, area that politics and public policy policy should be addressing, especially from a Christian perspective, which is, you know, there, there isn't uh, 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 folks uh, addicted to opioids don't exactly have the most vibrant, you know, uh, uh, advocacy lobby behind them. You know, this isn't necessarily a, uh, a story of, you know, money getting its way in politics. This is actually politicians addressing a, a problem of, of of human pain and devastation uh, in, in a way that, that, frankly, only the federal government can. Now, uh, just some, we, we have it on good word that uh, the Trump White House might be planning uh, and event to lift up private sector efforts around uh, opioid uh, around the opioid crisis. And certainly we applaud all of the private sector efforts. Uh, and it's when the private sector is working in tandem with with public sector efforts with a, a government that's again, that's attentive to 
uh, where people are hurting, uh, that we can really make some uh, progress. And so Christians in particular, I think, could be uh, could be happy to see this progress, uh, could be looking for places where you could plug in uh, in, in your own uh, personal capacity uh, to address this problem. Uh, and obviously, we'll continue to urge Congress uh, to act and find new ways to help uh, those because we uh, it's to have, uh, as you said, Justin, uh, the numbers I saw were 72,000 dying from uh, opioid overdose just last year. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely a public health crisis that requires a public response. Uh, but friends, uh, we're going to take one more quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk uh, about an interesting uh, auction that took place uh, 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 over the last few days. And then also, as Justin noted, we're going to talk about Liz Brunig's uh, amazing uh, Washington Post uh, editorial or uh, op-ed. Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And, and Justin, I, I just thought it, it would be fun to, to share th- this story. Uh, 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 several days ago uh, at a Sotheby's auction, uh, they were very proud to be auctioning off uh, artwork by an artist known uh, as uh, Banksy. And uh, Banksy... Uh, is an artist that uh, wants nothing to do with auctions. Uh, his work uh, has no copyright. Uh, he, he's uh, very much a social critic and wants his art to be free for uh, consumption. Uh, well, uh, Sotheby's doesn't really care about Banksy's uh, <laughs> Banksy's uh, ethics, and so they they got their hands on. Uh, on a, a piece of art that he did, a, a painting, and it sold for $1.3 million. So, you know, you'd think that would be good for, uh, definitely good for Sotheby's, good for the person who who bought it. Uh, and for those of you who haven't seen this online, uh, I, I would really urge you to look up the video. Uh, the, the second it sold, uh, a, a shredder activated in the frame of the painting, uh, for and, and the painting w- went through the shredder about about half half the way. It's so these photos circulated just of uh, of these uh, you know these pretty wealthy people who were you know I, I've never been to a Sotheby's auction. I I didn't even know that you could att- attend those kinds of things really. Uh, and uh, they're looking at this painting like. Uh, <laughs> like uh, uh, like their fortunes just got destroyed. And in the case of at least one person, uh, they kind of did. And so uh, I, I thought it was a fascinating story to see, especially last week uh, in the midst of uh, uh, so much political discord, uh, this, this sort of uh, whimsical uh, commentary on... Uh, consumerism and and uh, a sort of the commercialization of art, I thought was uh, was was really interesting and and uh, you know art, well, just the, uh, the the shredding and just the the exhibit of it all was was artwork itself. So just now, I don't know if you got to see any of it, but uh, but we definitely recommend that that folks check out the the video. It's, it'll definitely uh, uh, make you open up your eyes a, a bit wider. 
Yeah, now actually, this is my first time hearing about it. Uh, those of you who listen to the show, and I'm willing to admit that you probably know that uh, Michael is probably the more cultured of the two of us. So I don't know a whole lot about the art world, but this was hilarious to me. The question that I have was, does this actually increase the value of the painting or does it or does it make it less valuable? I don't know. Did the did the person who bought it? Do you know if the person who bought it still wanted it? Did they want to keep it? Because it wasn't totally shredded, right? So that's uh, Justin. My wife said this is like a like a Hunger Games type of thing because you know people report. Uh, you know there were like reporters reporting this story and saying you know Banksy had an important statement to make about you know commercialization and and the commodification of art. And then they close the story by by noting that uh, the, the 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 painting was worth more after it was, it was. shredded, which, <laughs> which is it just like this surreal. <laughs> You know, it just uh, you know, just absurd, man. <laughs> uh, so it's uh, it's just a fascinating, fascinating story. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely watch that video. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it uh, to see their heads whip around and look at that painting move through the bottom of the frame. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely worth worth a watch. Uh, well, Justin, uh, I think we wanted to close out. Uh, this week's episode, talking about Liz, Liz Bruning's latest column for the Washington Post. And I, I, I want you to jump in and, and talk about what, what you found interesting about it. I'll just say, as I watch the response to this column on social media feeds, uh, I was just stunned to see the broad diversity of people uh, on the political spectrum who read this column and shared it and said that it reflected reality as they saw it. Uh, And I think that's an exceedingly rare thing these days, especially for a column that's about really what's wrong with our politics for, for, for a column to, to summarize at least an aspect of it in a way that could be embraced and not sort of, now certainly everybody didn't agree with it, but I, I was seeing again, across the spectrum, people who, who weren't uh, uh, rebutting it or finding little things to nitpick at, but were saying, you know, this is this would be a profitable conversation to have. And so just why don't you, why don't you break down a little bit uh, Liz's column and what you found interesting about it. But I want folks to know before they hear this, um, that, 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 yeah, the, the, the uh, across the board, interest and sharing of this column is is something that i i thought was significant yeah it was um so elizabeth brunick who we've talked about before she's a very talented writer uh, i agree with a lot of things she says not everything but she's we've talked about her before because she she does hit some issues uh very well and i think she did it again this time the article was in the washington post and the title was Kavanaugh is one more step in America's cycle of self-destruction. And she provides us with a diagnosis. Uh, she says that American politics is dysfunctional because everyone thinks everyone else involved in politics is constantly, openly lying and they're right. Uh, she she implies that because there's so much lying going on in politics, that th- that. Uh, we have some of the lowest rates of democratic participation in the developed world just because the people know the politicians are lying. And it's interesting. She she says uh, what she says about why is pretty interesting. Uh, she, she basically says that we have not found a way to deal with all the diverse opinions 
uh, that we have in this country without lying to make sure that we don't come off as exclusive or intolerant because people think so many different things and we get so outraged when people disagree with us. She's saying that politicians feel pressured to not really say what they think, but to say something very different or even misleading just so they don't get thrown under the bus. And I think there is something to that. Um, Now, when applied to the Kavanaugh situation, she says this is what happened, that this was such a mess because Republicans didn't trust that Democrats wouldn't make up such an allegation. They couldn't they couldn't say that Democrats would never do something like that. And on the other hand, Democrats didn't trust that Republicans wouldn't dismiss such an allegation, even if they believed it to be true. And so anybody who went on Twitter, any type of social media last week or the last two weeks saw there were like two different realities People were on two different planets, depending on really what their political persuasion was and what party they, you know, what what political party they sided with. Uh, one side, it truly seemed like they thought this was all made up, even if they didn't say that exactly. And the other side was like, well, even you guys just don't care about women because you're just dismissing this very credible thing that you know to be true. And in that situation, as we saw, things get uglier and uglier because there is no trust that the other side works with good faith. Now, I'm not willing to say that there was ever a time in politics, this golden age where everybody trusted each other uh, completely. But there has to be some level of trust, some level of common ground for our politics to be constructive. And I think we are seeing such a breakdown in the credibility of one part of one party in the face of the other, that we really can't get through these crucial times. And when, when things blow up, it's hard for us to fix them because we just don't have the trust to make it happen. And so I think Brunig really hits on something that's hurting our politics. The sad thing is I'm not exactly sure how you fix it. And uh, I'd be interesting to hear anybody who, you know, follows this, uh, podcast, if you have any suggestions on how that can get better, because it's pretty disheartening. Yeah, I mean, just it really hit it on the head for me. And honestly, it was the kind of thing where uh, I feel like many of us who, especially those of us who are calling for greater political participation and are calling for, uh, for, a level of integrity in politics. These are the kinds of questions that we have in the back of our head, uh, back of our mind a lot of the time, which is just is like, maybe like the, the, the whole system is so much now predicated on distrust and is so much, um, corrupted by these, these tactics of deception, uh, that, that maybe the old way, uh, the old ideas about political engagement and what ethical political engagement uh, looked like, maybe they, maybe they just, uh, maybe they just aren't in play anymore. And these are questions now that have been taken up uh, by you know a pretty 
impressive array of of thinkers across a political spectrum. I mean, I think of Patrick Deneen, the political philosopher at Notre Dame, who wrote uh, his book, Making the Case for uh, Why uh, Liberalism Had Sort of Reached, uh, and by that he he means liberal democracy, uh, had reached its end. And we've seen Jamel Bowie over at Slate writing quite a bit more about these these questions of civic involvement. Uh, And now this column from Liz, which is uh, just what basis is there? What, uh, how can you, uh, obviously we can have courageous acts of a one-off statesmanship of, of people, uh, but uh, of people sort of uh, uh, trying to, trying to man the barricades or, or trying to uh, uh, provide one, one last uh, a gasp uh, uh, in support of basic civic uh, norms. Uh, but those people usually get voted office or in the case of someone like Jeff Flake uh, uh, on their way out of office. Uh, and so uh, what kind of energy, what kind of fuel uh, can there be for a renewal of civic bonds and, and civic trust? And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was admirable, but also, you know, pretty sad that Liz Brunick concluded her column in the way she did, which which was that she just doesn't have any answers. And and like you said, Justin, I'm not, I'm not sure I do uh, either, other than the fact that it's, it's going to come from a renewal of civic character at the, at the, uh, at the grassroots level <laughs> that uh, the system does not contain in itself just by its very uh, sort of by institutional mechanisms, a way of uh, healing itself. It's just going to be a matter of uh, the people demanding better and demanding better across the board. And that's, that's going to take a whole lot of, education and a, and a recommitment on the personal level of people who are just uh, t- tired of this politics of deception. Yeah. And I'm with you on that. I think, I think that's certainly part of it. The only other answer that I've seen that that could, could be part of the solution is, is in John Anazu's book, Confident Pluralism. This is another book that, this is a book that we've talked about before. And I think more people need to read it. What John Anazu, who is a law professor, says is that we need to we need to exercise confident pluralism, which is basically admitting that our disagreements are real and significant. Right. We disagree on things that are life or death uh, issues. And we have to be we have to uh, be able to acknowledge that and still work together despite those differences to still have the respect for people who have those type of serious disagreements with us. I think so much of what happens today is that it's okay to disagree on small stuff. And we think that although we're very different, uh, that our, our, that all our disagreements will be small. And then when it's something really big, whether it's abortion or whether it's, you know, all these other issues, it's clutching the pearls. Oh my God, I can't believe that these people over there believe such a thing. Um, and although we might disagree, and the reason that we disagree because is because our values are so different, there has to be a respect level to still have a healthy dialogue about it. And so I would recommend for those who are interested reading uh, the book, uh, Confident Pluralism, because I do think it gets at part of the solution. Uh, But we're going to have to work really hard and 
one thing I can say is Christians are going to have to pull themselves out of these uh, partisan silos and work together based on Christian principles. And that's something that we talk about with the and campaign all the time. We have pr- we have political preferences and then we have political principles. And as Christian, many of those principles should come from our shared Christian principles. And if we do that, then we can actually work together on some things that we may not have thought we could come together on before. Absolutely. Well, I think we've reached the end of this episode. Uh, I want to let folks know, again, I'm going to be in New York uh, at Redeemer at the W83 Ministry Center this Thursday, October 11th at 7 p.m. If you're in New York, I would just love to see you out. We're going to have an evening about faith and politics. And so I'm excited about that. Uh, Justin, I know uh, it sounds like you have a couple of events coming up in the, in the near future. Uh, Anything you want to tell folks about? Yeah. So this week on, on Thursday, October 11th, I will be at uh, pursuit of unity, which is an event that's going to be talking about race, the church, and politics. It'll be at Roswell Baptist Church at 7 p.m. And it's going to be me, Jackie Hill Perry, Show Baraka, Lisa Fields, and Mike McKee. And we're all going to be uh, talking and having a really good conversation. There'll be some question and answer. Again, that's the pursuit of unity. It's this Thursday, October 11th at, at Roswell Street Baptist Church in Atlanta. If you are in Atlanta, you do not want to miss this. It's going down. We're going to have a good time, but we're also going to talk about some very serious issues with some great communicators. So be there. All right, folks, there you have it. Thursday, uh, uh, you could be in New York. Uh, You could be that event is in Atlanta, Justin. That event is Atlanta. That's right. Yeah. So you could be in New York. You could be in Atlanta. You could catch at least uh, one half of the Church Politics podcast. Uh, But if you can't make it, we'll be back with you next week to cover uh, everything that happened uh, that you need to know about. All right, folks, this is the Church Politics Podcast. Hope you have a blessed week. Thanks for listening. Take care, church folk. For the activists and graduates, I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and leather gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. Okay, family, announcement. Our smart home is online. Cool, Dad. Yeah, smart lights, smart fridge, smart thermostat. The smart speaker plays music or answers questions like this. Check it out. Question, what animals besides humans have chins? Can't find home internet. Super impressive, Dad. Okay, hold on. Question, can you find the home internet? Can't find home internet. Ha <laughs> smart house! Your home is only as smart as your internet. 
Get fast, reliable internet with AT&T Fiber with speeds up to 300 megabits per second and direct TV. Save when you bundle for $75 per month for one year after discounts with 24-month TV and 12-month internet agreements. Limited availability may not be in your area. Check eligibility at att.com slash fiber300. AT&T, more for your thing. That's our thing. And 6919, new residential customers includes internet 300 and select TV packages. Speeds not guaranteed and vary. Requires auto pay combined and paperless bill. Prices higher in second year. Pay $80 per month until discount starts and free bill. Equipment lease, early termination, equipment non return, taxes, other charges, and restrictions apply. You'll do it right to grow the best garden you can. Lowe's does it right too with savings on Miracle Grow potting mix with fertilizer to help you get growing. And grow plants twice as big versus unfed plants. Pick up a 50 quart bag now for just $10. Plus, get Bonnie 2.32 quart vegetables and herbs, three for $10. For a garden that's worthy of showing off, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 6.5 while supplies last U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. The Home Depot's making it easy to turn your favorite moment into the perfect color for any room with the Project Color app. Upload any image, then discover the colors and paint to match. Now you're a swipe and a click closer to everything you need for your next project. Explore the most popular colors and trending palettes to find your perfect paint. Get a colorful new experience with the Project Color app, then shop our best brands with gallons starting from just $25.97 at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only. See store for details.